Hello and welcome to the Poplar Tapes. This is a podcast about uh, the intersections between philosophy and politics. And we try and look at some of the messaging and narratives that are out there in the media and the public sphere right now and maybe pull them apart and take a bit of a deeper dive. So um, today we've got an interesting episode for all of y'all. So yeah, buckle up. My name is Keegan Irish, and I'm here with... My name is uh, Alex Edwards. I am uh, a PhD candidate at the University of Ottawa right now in the uh, philosophy department. And my name is uh, Alex Bose. I'm a student at uh, Concordia doing my MA in translation studies. Okay, awesome. So... Um, today, the topic that we're going to be covering is hopefully pretty, or what is becoming maybe on brand for us, where uh, it's a little bit, we're a little bit behind the times here. We're looking at uh, some reports that came out over the last couple years, some reporting that originally is from, what is it, 2016, and then a report that came out uh, last year in 2018. So... Uh, what we're talking about in particular are the banks in Canada, the six largest um, banks in Canada have had, uh, well, they've been accused of uh, being corrupt in uh, various ways. And so there's been much more scrutiny placed through the course of this, uh, some journalistic reporting and as well reporting through governmental regulatory bodies to look at where this corruption is taking place, how endemic is it to the banks and uh, what can be done about this. And I guess it's probably important to point out that um this is sort of taking place in light of the changes to banking regulation that were rolled out after the 2007-2008 uh, financial crisis. So, yeah, Alex Boos, do you maybe want to give a bit more background on the media stories we're looking at here? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. On uh, March 6th, uh, 2017, uh, the journalist uh, Erica Johnson published a CBC Go Public article that was entitled... Uh, quote, I will do anything I can to make my goal. TD Teller says customers pay price for unrealistic sales targets, unquote. So in in, uh, in this article, uh, Johnson kind of weaves together personal statements of uh, TD Tellers, um, a diagram depicting uh, TD's rising earnings in the billions from 2012 to 2016, and uh, other information that reveals how TD Tellers have been breaking the law to reach TD Canada Trust's uh, retail sales targets. Um, and uh, Johnson even points out that the pressure on TD seller, uh, T, sorry, TD tellers uh, to reach sales targets is so bad that the distress that uh, the employees are feeling um, led to some of them to even seek uh, medical leave. And, uh, and then about a week later, or not even a week later, about four days later on March 10th, uh, Johnson uh, published another article entitled, uh, quote, we do it because our jobs are at stake, unquote. Um, TD Bank employees admit to breaking the law for fear of being fired, in which Johnson uh, writes, quote, hundreds of current and former TD Bank group employees wrote to go public describing a pressure cooker environment they say is poisoned, stress-inducing, insane, and has zero focus on ethics. 
<laughs> Sounds like a great place to work. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, one one TD teller uh, even admits to increasing clients' lines of credit without informing them, which uh, violates the Federal Bank Act. Okay. Awesome. Um, so we want to kind of look at these stories and embed them in maybe a broader scope or a, a bigger picture. Uh, of what is going on right now in our capitalist economy. And one of the ways that, or I guess, yeah, the way in that we're going to take is by means of a really interesting theorist uh, by the name of Mark Fisher. And so he was a British academic and uh, he wrote this book called Capitalist Realism. And um, really kind of in a in broad strokes, what the book is about is the way that capitalism has closed off the total horizon of possibility, uh, of political and kind of ethical possibility, right? And so he, the subtitle to the book is, Is There No Alternative?, which is uh, sort of a play on Margaret Thatcher's famous statement, there is no alternative. There is no alternative to capitalism, right? This is what needs to be done. Um, so these, this is the kind of messaging that capitalism is constantly reinforcing about itself, that it is uh, necessary, final, and the total horizon of possibility. So any kind of new actions that can be taken uh, are only possible within a capitalist horizon. We have to deal with things like uh, profit incentives and advertising and so on and so forth, right? This is kind of like uh, Francis Fukuyama's end of history um, mm-hmm. idea, right? It's a sort of an eschatology where, yes, I mean, capitalism is the, is the ultimate horizon of human development. Yeah, yeah. this is the final and best stage of what an economy and what a political life could be like or what what collective life and society in general could be like and so mark fisher uh is is highly critical of uh of of this kind of idea and wants to sort of poke holes in the horizon of capitalist realism it's like a conceptual and literary tapestry also that, that almost kind of depicts uh, motifs that can help us shift our thought patterns and like try and think ourselves out of the kind of like seamless appearance of realism that capitalism creates. Totally. So with that as sort of an intro, uh, we're going to look at these banking practices. Um, we're going to look at the government response to these banking practices after they were um, surfaced in the media, and we are going to look at that through the lens of Mark Fisher's ideas about capitalist realism. And so maybe we can move then into our first kind of segment uh, where we're going to talk in particular about uh, the Mark Fisher chapter on which he entitles Market Stalinism, uh, Bureaucratic Anti-Production. Uh, so this is a fascinating chapter, and we thought that there were some good analogies between what he's talking about in terms of market Stalinism and what can be seen in the banking practices. But it would be helpful to lay out what he means by that term, what he means by bureaucratic anti-production in the context of neoliberal capitalism. So maybe we can just walk through that argument quickly 
and uh, then we will turn to applying it to um, some of these banking practices and the the banking institution as a whole. Uh, if you take a look at um, page 40, uh, Fisher writes, quote, it might appear to be a mystery that bureaucratic measures should have intensified under neoliberal governments that have presented themselves as anti-bureaucratic and anti-Stalinist, yet new kinds of bureaucracy, aims and objectives, outcomes, mission statements, have proliferated even as neoliberal rhetoric about the end of top-down centralized control has gained preeminence, unquote. So I feel like here Fisher is referring to the uh, introduction of managerial surveillance into various sectors of society. Um, and it's a kind of form of, man of management that uh, is what he considers to be anti-productive, uh, just as anti-productive as bureaucracy. Uh, because uh, performance management is less about the qualitative operation and function of a specified activity and just more about the kind of representation of that activity. To, to kind of come back to what uh, Alex Edwards mentioned previously, how um, in this kind of end of history narrative that neoliberalism trots out about itself, like it portrays itself as anti-Stalinist and as Mark Fisher points out, uh, anti-bureaucratic. And yet the idea that this kind of uh, multiplication of market mechanisms will provide uh, friction-free forms of exchange between consumer demands and uh, production has uh, actually run into like a number of hitches. Um, and so uh, Fisher points out that uh, in part bureaucratic proliferation um, is a consequence of the fact that certain processes and services are resistant to uh, marketization and marketization. Yeah. And so the examples that he gives are education, uh, where he says it's kind of an ill-formed analogy between a market and being educated, where is the student a consumer of a service which education provides, or is the student a product which is being produced by the education system? And so that's never these kind of tensions aren't properly resolved. And similarly, uh, with the health uh, healthcare sector, they're not those things like that are not easily uh, marketized and commodified. And so there need to be these metrics that are put in place in order to uh, ease the transition into market economies. And so all of a sudden these kind of bureaucratic management of the metrics um, begin to uh, proliferate. Right. And just to, just to mention that, uh, I mean, that kind of analysis goes back at least to Marx, you know, for whom the question of to what extent is labor uh, the commodity, and rather, to what extent is the laborer uh, the commodity, mm -hmm. um, is an extremely important question to iron out. Right. Yeah, yeah there are roots here. Yeah. And uh, so the question of capitalist political economy, like these tensions and contradictions that have existed since the time of Marx, if not before, uh, or at least that we have been aware of since Marx kind of called attention to them, like they remain unresolved even after this kind of promise of the end of history, the fall of the Soviet Union, right? Like those old questions come back and someone like Fisher is really, really good at bringing that out and um, talking about the kind of contemporary uh, conflicts between uh, marketization and the social good. Yeah. 
it's also important to think about the fact that the I mean, part of the reason that these assessment measures have been implemented in the educational sector, to go back to that particular example that we were just talking about, Mark Fisher mentions how it's, uh, you know, it is because there are, like, funding implications for academic institutions, right? I mean, it shows how um, universities are bound up in uh, neoliberal economics, but also uh, it you know, shows us how universities have been businessized and, you know, they have an enormous dependence on enrollment and uh, they have a huge dependence on lar- uh, large donors. Like Yeah, commodif- the commodification of the university and of education and indeed of the, of the student, uh, on that, again, on that analogy of the commodification of the laborer. Yeah, uh, and, and to make a really yeah. kind of mm-hmm. fish, like, yeah. point in the vein of Mark Fisher, mm-hmm. the commodification of the student's future. Yeah. Right? right. Like there's this way in which we are betting, gambling That's on right. uh, the student's future. We're taking out in like loans with interest on the possibility of the student's ability to generate future profit. So Right. But of course um, we get stuck in this not you know, unending cycle of increasing interest and to the point that you become your entire future essentially becomes an indentured servant. Yeah, so maybe we could jump now to the White Sea Canal example to explain this analogy between uh, contemporary late capitalism and some of the impulses that were present in Stalinism as well. Uh, Transition. So, uh, yeah, uh, Fisher um, describes how the uh, Soviet Union's White Sea Canal which was a, uh, a major, or at least a purportedly major, industrial engineering project, um, uh, was represented in the media and how the popular, popular conception of this work of engineering ended up um, basically glorifying the image of the White Sea Canal and not the functional success of it um, in terms of, you know, being a, a marvel of engineering for commerce. And he says... Uh, that the uh, uh, canal never played a significant role in Soviet commerce or industry. Uh, it was just merely by means of its uh, representations by foreign and Soviet writers that it entered into popular memory as uh, a monumental construction project. So uh, the duality that he alludes to uh, is a discrepancy between a symbol of achievement and actual achievement. Right. And instead of playing an important role in commerce uh, and industry, the canal could only really accommodate uh, tourist boats. And it was like through these tourist boats and the people that were riding on them that uh, the canal ended up really serving a public relations purpose and kind of symbolically reinforced this image of the Soviet Union Union as a historical vanguard of technological development, engineering and power. So that's kind of this this uh, this way in which he is tying it back to uh, what he calls uh, market Stalinism. So this idea of um, symbols of achievement over actual achievement, as he kind of puts it. Yeah, so it's more important to represent uh, a performance or output uh, rather than to actually achieve the goals of a particular work. And given this kind of strange discrepancy in valuation, a short circuiting occurs and he says work becomes geared towards the generation and massaging of representations uh, rather than to the official goal of the work itself. 
Um, so we're looking at representation as opposed to productive labor. And he's arguing that under this kind of regime, representation is far more important uh, than the accomplishment of the work itself. Cosmetics, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so this is what he's saying, right? Like all that is solid is dissolved into uh, PR. So maybe I'll just read this little quote here um, that kind of helps explain this point. He writes, yeah, it would be a mistake to regard this market Stalinism as some deviation from the true spirit of capitalism. So here he's trying to point out that um, capitalism also has this logic of uh, PR and representation over genuine labor uh, built within it, right? It's not only Stalinism that has that, even though we might point our finger and say, oh, they were so bureaucratic and they were obsessed with representation, you know, really like that only comes to life within capitalist society itself. So he kind of brings that out here. Um, Yeah, it would be a mistake to regard this market Stalinism as some deviation from the true spirit of capitalism. On the contrary, it would be better to say that an essential dimension of Stalinism was inhibited by its association with a social project like socialism and can only emerge in a late capitalist culture in which images acquire an autonomous force. The way value is generated on the stock exchange depends, of course, less on what a company really does and more on perceptions of and beliefs about its future performance. Mm -hmm. In capitalism, that is to say, all that is solid melts into PR. And late capitalism is defined at least as much by this ubiquitous tendency towards PR production as it is by the imposition of market mechanisms. Yeah, so you know, there's there's a really yeah. Sorry. Well, I just wanted to say there's something uh, at least quasi platonic, if not uh, straight up platonic, about this issue of you know letting the image take the place of the original, uh, or Mm -hmm. or that of which it is the image, and sort of forgetting about the image as image and letting it obfuscate what it's supposed to represent. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Just a shout out to to my boy Plato. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So then he goes on to discuss the, this question of the big other. And um, this is important for the chapter. I'm not sure if we'll, related to our banking thing, but we'll see. I wanted to bring it up in any case. So um, the big other, right? And so he's taking this idea from, uh, it comes from Lacan and then through Zizek to Mark Fisher. And um, so the big other is for him, the collective fiction, uh, the symbolic structure, which is presupposed by any social field. And one of the important elements of the big other uh, is that it does not know everything, right? Um, And he writes, it is this constitutive ignorance of the big other that allows public relations to function. Indeed, the big other could be defined as the consumer of PR and propaganda, the virtual figure which is required to believe even when no individual can. I think that is kind of a really important point, right? Like, PR and propaganda is produced for the sake of the idea of symbolic appearances, even if people do not personally believe in it. It's nonetheless orders a social field Mm -hmm. such that it 
um, limits the horizons of possibility of acceptable discourse, right? So even though uh, he, and he gives the example later on, even though we know that companies are uh, rapacious and corrupt and brutal and all the rest, nonetheless, uh, we have to continue to speak as though they are acting in these kind of humanitarian ways, and it's almost offensive to just come out and say it straight up that. Um, that companies behave in this way, even though as an individual, like you know that to be the case, right? Like we we all know that that's true. That these companies are not really motivated by humanitarian concerns, right? Like at bottom, they are. How does he say um, that they are inhuman? Uh, they are corrupt and they are ruthless and indifferent. Yeah. So I was going to say at at the very least indifferent, and I would just. Add, I mean, pretending to be indifferent. Uh, um, you know, this whole notion that it's like, well, I, I just care about my profit margin and everything else. I'm just indifferent toward that. You know, well, the individuals involved in that are still, you know, members of society. They emerge out of, you know, the social networks uh, that we all belong to. And in that sense, it's sort of pretending to be indifferent, although, you know, actually being harmful or, or at least wrongful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. Totally. I think that, uh, you can, you can definitely take what you just said, Keegan, and see that happening in the, uh, CBC article and, uh, that Er Erica Johnson, published uh we'll we'll put i guess like hyperlinks in the uh the show notes you know we'll get into more detail uh, once we start analyzing the fcac report but uh one of the things that i noticed in the financial consumer agency of canada's report and in the cbc articles is that there's a discrepancy between the testimony of frontline employees who are talking about the stress-induced environment and uh what uh, the you know the banks say and even by just saying that banks are saying this kind of refers to them as this weird non-identity or like impersonal autonomous entity that is uh, kind of like the bank can never really directly be encountered in this weird way. But uh, the banks here are denying the counter narrative that is being set up by the investigations and the media narratives. And Johnson's article or one of her articles, uh, the CEO of T.D. Bharat Masrani, who is still the CEO today, he became the CEO in 2014. Uh, He claims that uh, T.D. has a history of great customer service because, quote, by listening and responding to our colleagues and our customers, we are in the trust business. Everything we do is about earning and sustaining the trust of those we serve. So he is absolutely ignoring uh, the counter narratives that are being constructed here. So what you're pointing to, Alex, is this clear conflict between the bank, the PR of the banking firm and um, the reporting that we're seeing on the ground of the pressure to break the law, of the pressure to uh, meet these sales targets and uh, so on and so forth, right? And which... Uh, necessarily will be these kind of breaches in trust, which is precisely the thing which uh, the CEOs of the banks say that they broker in. So if you're selling a an inappropriate financial product to um, a consumer, then there's no reason that, uh, that 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 person should trust you or that that's 
building trust or anything like that. And so if that's your kind of uh, modus operandi, that's your driving force is that you're trying to push these financial products onto consumers and that you see them as consumers of products in the first place rather than as uh, people who have entrusted their livelihood to you, which I think is probably the case with yeah. banks, then you know there's a huge discrepancy between the reality on the ground and the face of the bank in terms of PR. Okay, so now let's move into discussing the FCAC report, which was released in 2018. And so FCAC stands for Financial Consumer Agency of Canada. And so this is a regulatory body um, which attempts to argue, uh, produce legislation which will regulate the banking industry. Yeah. And it, it also, um, one of its statements is that it's supposed to help educate consumers on the financial sector as well. So it's kind of there for the public. Like you can find the report we're talking about on online. Yeah, so one of their mandates is to educate the public and uh, generate more financial literacy, which will uh, hopefully reduce um, the degree to which banks can prey on people by um, pushing financial products that those people should never have purchased. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the report is an interesting, if strange, document, right? Um, It's framed in terms of risk to consumers. So it really, it already kind of takes on this language of the finance industry where we're thinking about the distribution of risk as sort of a a probability, a metric of probability. Um, So there's a lot of those kind of weird elements to this where it is very much bound up in the uh, power structure of the banks themselves, the language of the banks themselves, the discourse that surrounds finance uh, in uh, this country and in the capitalist economy. The lingo, the lingo of finance capital, if you like. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's very, they're, they're speaking that language, but nonetheless, uh, the attempt here is to help out consumers. And we can talk about how successful that is. Uh, but I do think that there are important things we can learn um, from this report. So first of all, the government in this case, uh, through the mechanism of this agency, is uh, responding to narratives and reporting that are in the media. That alone is pretty interesting. That uh, it took a reporter um, kind of digging into these issues and bringing them into the public eye for it to become something that was important enough to be monitored or uh, uh, for this data to be produced in the first place. And so I think one of the most interesting points and framing devices that they use is that technical or technological changes and developments have led to fundamental changes in the model of the banking industry. So with the proliferation of online banking, and as most consumers prefer to use online banking for their day-to-day transactions or to uh, go to an ATM at the most in terms of their kind of day-to-day banking, Um, It has changed the way that banks look at their brick-and-mortar institutions, right? the branches. The branches have been transformed into stores. And the tellers at the counters and the other folks that you might interface with at a bank uh, have become channels for um, potential sales 
in the eyes of the bank itself, right? I think uh, Alex made a Freudian slip earlier when he said, uh, bank sellers, uh, tellers. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. They are out there hustling, right? One or the other. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and so there's a whole, um, there's a focus on sales, right? Um, Sales are incentivized for the staff, Right, and there's a culture around making sales of financial products um, that has become the kind of central component of what is done at a bank branch. And I think a lot of people at the level of like the common public, or to use the lingo, like consumers, have not really made this switch psychologically. Like they don't think of themselves when they go to the bank as being sold a financial product. Right, like they think of themselves as going to use a service which is necessary to participate in our economy. Right, mm-hmm. so uh, I think even just at that level, there's a discrepancy. And to think about what these new technologies have done in changing how uh, banks operate—not that they weren't exploitative before—but you know, there's this new kind of development. Yeah. To add to that, instant communication technologies and uh, net networked infrastructures have been uh, kind of normalized and have been kind of assimilated into our everyday. But um, they allow for banks to have, uh, you know, to have these third party arrangements, uh, and so banks are capable of. Uh, extending their reach and selling products uh, like credit cards to consumers in non-bank settings. So not at a branch, right? You can go to a sporting event or an airport and there are going to be kiosks that try to sell you, uh, you know, banking products, I guess you can call them, right? And they also, uh, you know, data mining and data profiles and um, uh, data processing has change to the internal governing structures of banks now. So data collection is used uh, both as something for the performance management of a bank, managing the employees and their performance output. And then it's also been used to um, to create those profiles of its, uh, its consumers. Mm-hmm. In a panopticon sort of setting. <laughs> Every, everybody's being watched. Uh, but you sort of participate in yeah. your own... Uh, your own imprisonment, which yeah. is, I think that really speaks to the performance management component where uh, it's all about creating this culture of uh, the sale of financial products, uh, which is which banks do by uh, generating financial um, incentives and other kinds of incentives for their workforce, right? Um, in the report, it says that currently banks tend to assign greater value to more profitable and complex financial products and services, uh, which may lead to mis-selling and poor consumer outcomes, which is a very nice way of putting things. Um, so yeah, talk about a euphemism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so these sale targets, right, are really encourage the workforce of the bank to push these different kinds of financial products onto consumers without concern for what the financial status and uh, future of um, those individuals might be. And so this is sort of the big concern from the perspective of the FCIC, um, and they have a kind of a series of 
strategies for attempting to mitigate those new risks. And I mean, we could talk about this, right? Because we could talk about how effective their strategies are on the one hand, but we can also talk about the framing um, in terms of risk. You know, where does this risk come from? Why is it that consumers of the bank's products and services um, are saddled with this this new risk and this sort of um, need to become financially literate in, in in new kinds of ways and be educated uh, on, on on these financial products, right? Like, why are these financial products being generated um, in the first place? And I think that those kind of questions about the root of the problem uh, aren't something that really register for regulatory bodies. And the fact that they don't kind of frame their questions in terms of where these pro- uh, problems are coming from, uh, it leads to kinds of solutions which you know, will maybe offset the quote-unquote risk, but how is that going to stop the continued generation of new financial products in order to generate new financial incentives for banks themselves, right? Um, I don't really think that it will. And so that for me is where the yeah, report... Yeah, it's Band-Aids. Yeah, right? it's a Band-Aid solution. Uh, and we could talk about this... Instead of actually diagnosing the the root causes of the sickness, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. So the report's about 26 pages long. And uh, in the report, they mention uh, mobile mortgage specialists. Uh, they're people that go out into the community and meet clients and uh, business contacts in order to kind of basically, uh, you know, sell mortgages uh, independently of a branch channel. And so it says in the report, this mobility coupled with 100% variable pay presents a higher risk to consumers, particularly given that controls are underdeveloped and levels of bank supervision are less intense. So um, these uh, these mobile mortgage specialists, uh, they don't have a base salary. They're just paid commission, straight commission. So they're going off uh, and meeting people and trying to sell mortgages independently of branch. And there's nobody, there's no manager really supervising them. And uh, and the report even says that um, uh, in, uh, some banks sell upwards of 90% of their mortgages through m- mobile mortgage specialists. And, uh, you know, one of these ideas of a solution is just like, oh, like improving uh, the surveillance uh, of them, uh, you know? And it's just Mm -hmm. like, that's not, like, that's not really, like, I don't even think that's possible necessarily either. (laughs) (laughs) But like, that doesn't solve, yeah, yeah, like, doesn't really solve it, right? Like, there are these blatant contradictions between the the need, like, these... uh, market initiatives and targets, these sales targets, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, the sustainable functioning uh, of, uh, or like, yeah, the sustainable, like a sustainable economy or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, another example of a solution which is only going to create more problems is this idea of uh, customer satisfaction metrics. So instead of only having sales targets, uh, the FCAC recommends that um, there are customer loyalty and satisfaction um, metrics which are implemented uh, for the employees at the bank that they have to meet and monitor and meet uh, and so on. Um, and here again, you know, I just 
I think that that is going to create more problems than it solves this kind of thing. Like it's, it's creating more of these metrics, which in turn will um, be commodified into financial products and like brought back within the logic of the bank's uh, ability to uh, reproduce itself. Um, And also it, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. Like it just seems maladapted to the problem itself. Rather, it just creates yet another um, kind of level of bureaucracy, as Mark Fisher talks about, right? Yeah, or if you yeah. want, layer of commodification, yeah. right? So it's like the, you know, it's a, it's a new market, right? Yeah. As they say, exactly, that is open for exploitation. Yeah, because as soon as you generate these <laughs> metrics, right? As soon as yeah. you generate mm-hmm. these metrics, then they become uh, market targets, and they are brought within yeah. the logic of this market. So, whereas the whole problem in the first place is the commodification of the whole process Mm -hmm. right i mean like that's actually the problem yeah uh (laughs) so introducing more layers of this doesn't exactly solve you know anything (laughs) ultimately so just to bring it back to fisher like it's just that proliferation that increasing proliferation of new bureaucratic mechanisms and metrics in order to uh, shift the representation of the problem without ever addressing um, the issue in its sort of uh, concrete reality or approaching the question of what is the actual goal of the work being done in a bank, right? And uh, that that's that's never asked and so what i noticed about a lot of these to kind of maybe draw out a larger trend here of, of with the two examples we've given so far and other uh the other solutions offered in this report what i noticed is that they are cultural solutions to structural problems so this is one of the things they talk about right oh well uh if the tone from the top quote unquote is about uh treating treating the consumers well and being concerned with their particular financial situation. Um, you know, if we change the cultural value on the sales, the cultural values on the sales floor, then it will decrease the uh, risk to consumers of being taken advantage of. Um, and, you know, all of these kind of cultural solutions leave the profit incentives untouched, uh, leave the sales targets and the production of financial products untouched. So as long as those incentives and um, the, these kind of profit motives continue to exist, um, the cultural solutions will do nothing, right? Uh, except act as that kind of PR shield against this journalistic scrutiny uh, while the mechanism uh, continues to operate untouched, I think. Yeah, like the metrics of customer satisfaction could easily just be used as a cover-up or veil to these fundamentally exploitative practices. Uh, yeah, kind of exactly relations. Exactly. Yeah. Another another thing that we should think about is the way the way that the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada's report is actually contributing to that that kind of production of uh, capitalist realism, I guess. So, I mean, the customer satisfaction and these metrics are, can kind of be used as these like empirical things, you know, like, oh, this is like evidence that we can like use to back, back up this realism that 
uh, institutions are going to be making about themselves. So like, look at the customer satisfaction and the loyalty that we have. Like we are like, you know, in the business of trust or something like there are these ways in which it can be instrumentalized to back them up. And the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, having come come up with these terms like, uh, you know, mis-selling and the, these uh, structures that it considers to be non-risky sales practices or something or like normal sales practices from a legal standpoint upholds capitalist realism as well. And, you know, maybe to just, um, I don't know if this was where you were going to move, uh, Keegan, but... Just to point out, I think we have just touched on maybe the nub of the problem here. Um, you know, we've just mentioned the profit motive, right? And this kind of structure of financial incentives. Um, and, you know, I guess it's important to take a step back and just ask the question, generally, you know, about it really a kind of any institution, but take a bank. To what extent do we as a society want to allow privatized banks as opposed to something like a public bank, for instance, where, uh, which, you know, in theory does not uh, operate uh, in terms of a, in terms of a profit margin. Um, you know, the, the, its priorities are different. Um, just to read uh, a quick blurb from uh, publicbankinginstitute.org, um, which I think gets at this issue of motivations and structural incentives. So I think this is helpful. It says, public banking is distinguished from private banking in that its mandate begins with the public's interest. Privately owned banks, by contrast, have shareholders who generally seek short-term profits as their highest priority, right? This issue of, like, what your priorities are, getting your priorities straight, you know, kind of comes up here. Uh, public banks are able to reduce taxes within their jurisdictions because their profits are returned to the general fund of the public entity. The costs of public projects undertaken by governmental bodies are also greatly reduced, because public banks do not need to charge interest to themselves. Eliminating interest has been shown to reduce the cost of such projects on average by 50% and so on and so forth. Um, but I, I think, you know, insofar as the, as the problem is the commodification of banking, where it's in these kind of bank tellers' short-term interests, to deceive uh, their quote-unquote customers um, into making, you know, decisions that aren't actually advantageous to them. You know, it sort of creates this rift within labor, you know, within working-class people. I, I suppose maybe, I think this is right to include both, you know, the bank tellers, right? Oh, for yeah. sure. So, um, oh, yeah. And it creates, you know, to the point that it literally, as the article points out, and as you, you know, point out earlier, that it has traumatized uh, these bank tellers to the point that they've had to take medical leave because, you know, they have a conscience. And I mean, it's it's deeply traumatic, just even at the individual psychological level, uh, uh, you know, let alone 
social well-being. Um, so, you know, I think that's something that has that we have to bring up at a certain point, just sort of taking a step back and asking, you know, like, should banks uh, even, you know, work on that principle of, you know, private capital gain? Uh, or, you know, I mean, should there be some public banks uh, in competition with some private banks and, you know, that this would be better for, you know, I mean, I'm not presuming to, to, to answer these deep questions, which, you know, you actually need to, I mean, there needs to be a, a movement in, in society towards that at any rate, at any rate, it's not so much about academics sort of, you know, choosing which one they like better. It's like, well, what can you, what can you do and where can you move? So, but yeah. yeah. And the FC, and the thing is like something like the FCAC report doesn't move us towards those kinds of solutions, right? right? Precisely. Where we really question Precisely. the, yeah. Exactly. Or where we really question the profit motive. It prevents those questions. Yeah. yeah. It's a way of circumventing those questions yeah. and uh, attempting to regulate private banking yeah. in it's this mitigation, way. mitigation, right? Yeah. It's yes. just an attempt As to they mitigate say, the... I think that's actually an, a nice slip probably, right? That's like, yeah. We're just trying to like, mitigate the corruption. Yeah. We're not actually yeah. trying yeah. to eliminate it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. And, yeah. and you're right that both the employee of the bank and the customer of the bank are both hurt by this, yes. right? Like the employee takes on this psychic damage and uh, has this fucking bizarre yeah. relationship with a, a fellow member of the working class who's coming in where you're, t- where you're incentivized to deceive that person. You're incentivized to uh, get them into a situ- financial situation, which will, you know, materially harm them, right? Like they're going to have to owe more money on interest on these loans that they don't fully understand in these financial That's products right. that are Baroque and opaque. Like who, you know, who, what working person has, the time to, um, as the FCAC report um, kind of advocates for, like educate themselves about different financial products. You know, are joke. you kidding? People working like, three jobs have time to go on YouTube and learn about uh, you know banking <laughs> theory. Get yeah, out, get and out it's of like here. banking. Like banks are the primary educator of uh, of the public when it comes to questions of finance. You know, yes, yeah. so it's like, and it's in their interest to be as deceptive as possible. So to say that, oh, the public just should like take on this moral duty on their own and like learn about this stuff is 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 pretty unfair. You know, it's like we can't really unload that onto people to ha- be able to understand increasingly baroque uh, systems, which are uh, which are conti- sorry, which are continually like incentivized to reproduce themselves in new and more. Elaborate way. Yeah, it's demonizing. Yeah, yeah. It's demonizing individuals for systemic problems, right? It's yeah. just kind of like, well, well, climate change. You know, that's because you didn't shut off the light. Like, if you, you yeah. know, uh, you know, it should, so it's on you, basically. Yeah. It's on citizens yeah. instead of giant multinational fossil fuel corporations, etc. You know. Yeah. Um, and just yeah, I, I just kind of wrap that point up. I mean, it's a classic instance of pitting the working class against itself. Uh, right, uh, you know, divide and conquer strategy, whether consciously or unconsciously, but that's how it's operating, right? So yeah, you literally have these traumatized bank sellers who are, why are they traumatized? Because they had to essentially sell out, <laughs> you know, their fellow citizen in yeah. order to retain their job. I mean, and only the most uh, yeah. sociopathic is able to climb up the ladder as they're like increasingly sales motivated. Yeah, exactly, the rest this. with a moral compass have left. Right, that's yeah. right. The, <laughs> the the more you worry about you know uh, yeah. screwing other people over, 
you, the less the, you're going to meet those performance targets. Precisely, the less <laughs> like, you know, more likely it is you're going to get out of there. In order, and that's how they kind of filter these sociopathic tendencies, at least, if not just like yeah. outright sociopaths, to the top. Right. Yeah. And so it's like you can't you know, that's how you become a leader of one of these institutions is that you don't care, you know, because if you did, you wouldn't be there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's not it's not an accident. It's just like a logical well, I think that's exactly filtration. Right. And, and, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so Fisher talks about this as well. Right. Yeah. Where um, he talks about the way that um, this kind of moral concern is offloaded onto the individual and uh, the effect that it has on people. This uh, self-criticism and this self-flagellation that people take on because they get duped into these circumstances, whether it's the teller who's self-flagellating themselves because they have uh, uh, inappropriately sold some product in order to make a, an incentive that uh, that that individual had no idea about or whether it is the consumer who was duped into buying a financial product which has cost them long term and all of a sudden they have all this debt and you know now they can't get x y or z and they have to choose between these basic necessities due to the load of um you know growing uh user usurious uh, kind of interest and yes, so on exactly yeah. you know um it 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 creates that those pain that pain and that suffering within people as individuals as well and it's that that's very cruel yeah, and very yeah. twisted in my yeah. um yeah well in um, my view. i think this raises a really important question though which is uh where to place accountability uh in relation to it, it within this context right so yeah yes both the fcac report and uh the cbc article tend to portray the the banking employees and like the frontline staff as people who are um, victims to the market initiatives and and I mean we are like of course yes like uh, the psychological distress and fact that they're employees who needed to seek medical leave is extremely concerning right and even with those terms that were mentioned in the article like it's a pressure cooker environment like insane you know like, <laughs> you know obviously there's a huge issue there uh but um they do tend to portray uh the uh individual workers as more or less innocent and even though there are some employees who decide to quit right because of their feeling of moral responsibility and then there are others who you know just want that promotion or they want to make that uh that extra you know money or they want that vacation package yeah you know so there is i guess there's this, either they don't like care or it outweigh one outweighs the yeah. other yeah yeah exactly so i mean we uh, on the one hand um there are the structures that are in place and uh, these people who want to, you know, make a living, uh, you know, or make, you know, obviously above, uh, above like minimum wage uh, to uh, support themselves uh, and support their, uh, you know, their own personal um, uh, projects or, you know, or families, uh, or, or et pursue. cetera. Yeah, yeah exactly, I mean, right? this is why it's super ambiguous. Yeah. Yes. I, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But but uh, then then there's also uh, uh, this question of to what extent are you willing to yeah to what extent are you willing to pursue those uh, projects uh, and uh, 
risk deferring your the like misery that you could have or like the, the stress that you could be uh experiencing onto somebody else by uh lying to them and deceiving them and selling them things that they can't afford and et cetera, et cetera. Like there I, I'm just wondering, I guess what I mean is um where where do we consider individual responsibility in this situation? And you know, if people were more educated who are going into this sector uh, you know, who are going to be uh, working for these banks, uh, if they were more educated about uh, ethics or something, or like business ethics, like, would they have a greater, you know, would they be asking themselves these questions, you know, and would, like, I, I don't even, we don't even know if they are asking these questions when they're... Yeah, no, it's it's hard to say. And I, I, yeah. I, I'll make a couple points, like, so I think business ethics is just a contradiction in terms, huh. like, at the end of the day, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and similarly, like the kind of field of sales is profoundly unethical. Yeah, you know, like there's an attempt to push a commodity on someone, and there's the implication that it is something that they do not need. You know, like you don't have to sell or have a marketing campaign to someone if they need something. You know, they're gonna be able, they're gonna get that, they're gonna go for it. Uh, you don't have to advertise, um, you know, basic food stuffs or whatever. You know that I I do think that there's just an, a, a kind of unethical component <laughs> to to sales in general. But when and it, and it, that's especially true when it comes to the kind of, these kind of financial uh, sales sector. I guess the question is sort of it like is that component immoral or amoral? Yeah, uh, yeah. But at any rate, what were you going to say? Yeah. Yeah, and, and no, I mean the question remains like to what degree is the individual who is working there responsible? And I, I do think we need to have some solidarity with folks who are uh, yeah, absolutely just working a job or whatever. And yeah, there's like this really toxic culture that's being like pushed yeah. down on them, and that they have to sort of conform themselves to. Yeah, I mean when I but, worked uh, at a bagel shop, I had to you know stand outside sometimes and try to seduce people into coming in to get the bagels, <laughs> you know. And it's like <laughs> it's sort of. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a slimy, you could say, yeah. but uh, <laughs> there's, uh, I don't know if it's, uh, it seems negligible enough yeah, in comparison and, and, to like primary responsibility. Um, you might argue there are chains of responsibility, but, you know, I mean, obviously you got to get to the root. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I, I, I would argue something similar. And so, you know, like. Like it's not that a bank teller is an, eth- an ethical person necessarily. Like they could be perfectly uh, moral in their day to day life, but uh, they're kind of put into this situation where um, they don't have a lot of options. I mean, yeah, you can quit and get a different job, but that's never really that good an argument in the context of like a capitalist economy. It's difficult to just you know jobs aren't just freewheeling out there like landing a job is yeah. a pretty big deal yeah. um, especially if you yeah. have specialized training yeah. you know like a lot of people get into account, like let's say you study accounting or whatever you study one of these kind of fields and uh you know you might start that when you're like 16 or when you're 17 or something and uh, then you go through this schooling and you know here's your first entry-level position like you know it's difficult for that person to have like that full kind of uh, awareness of these kind of networks of responsibility. And honestly, man, like I've been uh, watching some videos of a finance course in the Yale open courses 
And there is so much propaganda in there, like just mm. laced in mm. along with their equations and everything and the way that they frame stuff. Like it is extremely propagandistic about what is going on in these industries. So if you've Are gone... Are you telling me it's not pure mathematics? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like when you go through these, uh, these kinds of training and schooling as well, you don't have some kind of recourse to... Um, you know, a different way of critical thinking, then it's, it's tough, right? Like, uh, it's tough to say if that person, how responsible that individual is. You know, you could even say like, it's crucial that we all have the ability to think in that regard, but to, you know, there are like social conditions preventing people from looking at the whole picture and to blame those individuals who are actually victims, you know, of those, of those structures or of those social conditions, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's basically just victim blaming. Right. And it's like, so this is the, I think indeed we just have to kind of, you just, I mean, there are people with more, with, with more of a quote unquote moral compass than others in this regard. Some of them, you know, are so traumatized that they go to the medical leave and some aren't, but either way, it's, it's the, it's a structural problem more than it is any of their faults, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I feel like more like having a moral compass too. And like this question of choice, like, Oh, you know, if uh, you know, you would just quit the job and find another one or something like that kind of option uh, also depends on uh, is like very contingent, right? Like, Oh yeah. Uh, be like, you know, you could be a, you know, a single bachelor maybe and be making bank, you know, uh, and then <laughs> you, you quit, uh, because you have the money to like sit on, you know, like, you know, and you don't want, maybe, maybe you don't have a $50,000 fucking car, right. And you don't have this huge house so you can sit on the money and actually find something, you know? Um, so being able to have a moral compass like comes with like material, uh conditions uh that allow you to do that well indeed and as you know and education if if you want and yeah you know expecting everybody to you know have a good grasp on on uh on what do you want to call it like just economics in general is totally unfair and it's also it's elitist right and especially like the ethics of economics yeah like the ethics of economics uh but you know maybe we can just say this if uh if you're listening right now and you're considering becoming a mobile mortgage specialist maybe don't do that (laughs) (laughs) you know consider a different path yeah it's a a track that you might Uh, find uh well, you know, it t- t- turns out you might find it traumatizing to the point that you have to go to the, to the doctor <laughs> or the psychologist. Yeah, or and, and if you don't, it might yeah. turn you into a monster. So yeah. consider yeah. not doing that, right? Because if you do manage to, to yeah. rise up, like, shit, dude, you're lost. Like, by the time you become a banking yeah. executive or yeah. some shit, like, whew, I don't know what we can say for that person. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, maybe just, uh, <laughs> to bring it back around here. So, so we kind of talked through uh, a few issues here. It's a really hot, uh, sweaty day. So I think this one was a bit scattered, but, uh, it's been fun mm-hmm. kind of looking at this stuff. And I would encourage y'all if, uh, you're listening to 
maybe read the executive summary of the FCAC report. It's like a page. And just uh, think about um, these issues next time you're going to the bank and they algorithmically ask you the same question, like, do you want to get uh, whatever protections and so so on and so forth? And they ask you every fucking time and you're like, no, thank you. Like, I do do not want this financial product. You know, just uh, notice those patterns, right? Like, Notice those patterns and don't ask, don't ask them about it and imagine that they are going to give you good advice. You know, that's a problem that I've run into in the past, like in my own, just from an anecdotal perspective of like trying to navigate banking and everything. Like when I trusted the people who uh, told me what kind of bank account I should have and how I should organize these things, like you get burned pretty easily, you know? So you do have to kind of do your own research and, uh, not trust that uh, those people have your best interests at heart. And when you read that that page or, or, or the whole report, you know, pay attention not only to the content, yeah, the ostensible content of what they're saying, but also the form, yeah, in which in which it's said. Uh, like when we were talking before about the framing, yeah, of of, of risk prevention and and so forth. Um, and you can ask, you know, to what extent does the form uh in which it's written if you will in you know to what extent does that inform the content of of what's there because as we were saying you know there's there's a big difference between band-aid solutions and you know eradication of root causes um again if you go to the doctor you know you want the latter and not just the former (laughs) and you know you should yeah yeah. so so keep that in mind you know not just what they're saying but how they're saying it yeah absolutely definitely and uh if you if you do want to see the full report um and read through it uh it's called the domestic bank retail sales practices review you can just look that up online and Google or uh, whatever search engine you may want to use. And uh, Duck, duck, go. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Opera. Yeah. But, okay, wait, wait, wait. Um, mm. Maybe if, if I can just speak to Edward's your point there um, briefly, because, yeah, like this form, uh, the way in which um, the – the language in which these ideas are couched that are coming mm-hmm. from these regulatory bodies that are coming from the banks like remember that's the representation of what they're doing and they're so they're so fixated on representing it in a way that it will be palatable that it can uh, go down that these transi- transactions can happen without friction and that they have your best interests at heart like that way of representing themselves, right? Like that's the PR that hides something much uglier, much more rapacious, that it doesn't have much relationship to the kind of stated goals of the work as they appear in the PR, right? And that would really be the point from Mark Fisher that I think is important to drive home uh, when we're talking about this stuff is that there's this real discrepancy there between um, consumer satisfaction metrics and between the ultimate driving force behind uh, having a private bank in the first place, which is to profit off holding everyone's money mm-hmm. yeah. you know, at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. It betrays the the assumptions, the fundamental assumptions, which are, aren't actually stated in the text. 
Okay, so maybe we'll uh, leave it there. Uh, thank you guys. If you've come with us this far, that's awesome. I uh, hope this wasn't too all over the map. Uh, it has been fun to dig into this stuff and really think about yeah. it. So, pleasure, um, yeah, indeed, this is uh, this is the Poplar Tapes. Uh, and uh, you can follow us on Twitter at the Poplar Tapes. And uh, if you think we're wrong about everything or you think we missed some important points, then uh, hit us up there and let us know uh, what you think. And, uh, yeah, with that, we'll uh, take care, guys. Wonderful. Take care. Take care.